0: Well, this morning we're beginning a new series, uh, a short series, but a new series on the book of Jonah. And as we begin this series in the book of Jonah, I want you to hear this quote from Charles Spurgeon, quote, we think that we do well to be angry with the rebellious, and so we prove ourselves to be more like Jonah than Jesus, end quote. You see, today, we live in a society today that is not welcoming to those who are followers of Christ. It is a society that is hostile to Christ and his followers. Certain parts of the world even downright violent. And living in those conditions, if you and I are not careful, we can slowly begin to harden our hearts. And start seeing those people without Christ as our enemies who deserve God's judgment rather than as sinners desperately in need of God's grace. And that's the very heart condition we're gonna see that Jonah had. That was the problem. And if we're honest, that might be the actual condition of our some of our hearts here this morning. We proclaim that everybody needs Christ. And yet our very hearts are perhaps hard and closed off to those that we see as our enemies. We see the news feeds. We see the signage. Some would call propaganda in the culture and society. You go to the stores. And little by little, if you're not careful, your heart gets a little harder and a little harder and a little harder, and it's us versus them. They become enemies without even realizing it. Now, we wouldn't say that, but the evidence of it is we scoff when we look at them. How could they believe that? How could they do that? We begin to have all these hard-hearted postures. We don't actually engage We don't share Christ. We don't pray. We don't intercede. We don't love them. And so my prayer is that as we work through the book of Jonah these weeks, that our hearts would be softened and our eyes would be open to the reality that every single person, including you and I in this room this morning, are undeserving of God's saving grace. But thankfully, our God is the sovereign God who saves. Now, a little background on the book of Jonah. The title of the book bears the name of the author, Jonah, who was a prophet. Jonah served under King Jeroboam II. Uh, Jeroboam was a wicked, wicked king. He was serving about 150 years after King Solomon died. Jonah, this book, is written around the 8th century, and it's focusing on a people group called the Ninevites, people from Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was founded, if we were to look back in our Bibles at Genesis 10, by an individual named Nimrod. And through the time that passes, Nineveh becomes the, the capital city, even more importantly, the military capital city of the Uh, City of the Assyrian Empire These are a a rough, tough, violent, wicked group of people Nahum chapter 3 verses um, 1 through 3 actually says this regarding Nineveh Woe to the city of bloodshed Completely full of deception and pillage Her prey never departs the sound of the whip and the sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging and swords flaming, spears flashing, many slain, a mass of corpses. And there is no end to the dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Nineveh was a violent, scary place to be. Nineveh was also regarded as probably the large, perhaps one of the largest ancient cities during that time. And when we read of Nineveh here in Jonah's book, it's not necessarily talking about the city itself proper. It could be talking about kind of the region surrounding. So in the same way that if you were going to go out of state and somebody asked where you live, and if you were to say, well, McHenry, Illinois, they probably wouldn't really know. So you'd say, well, I kind of live in the Chicago area. You live in Chicago. In the same way, it's kind of an all-encompassing term for the city proper and those little regions around it. And very important to understand, Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. We'll see that more here in a bit. So we're gonna see that God, as many of us are familiar, sends Jonah here. And the purpose of this entire book The purpose of all of Jonah is to show clearly that God is sovereign and that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. In many ways, Jonah shows us the missionary heart of God. I do want to address some interesting things that have happened the last maybe hundred years or so. Up until recently, nobody ever really questioned the book of Jonah. But the last hundred years with modernism, postmodernism, and all these different ideologies, people have began to question, is this book actually historical? Maybe it's an allegorical book. Maybe it's kind of a parable of sorts. Was Jonah really the author? Did a fish really take a man in his belly for three days? All these different issues. So I just want to address the fact that, yes, it is a historical book. First of all, it uses the, the prophet Jonah, who's mentioned in 2nd Kings. So if you're making something up, you probably don't want to use historical figures that could verify accounts. And even more importantly, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 references Jonah as a historical figure and that these things truly happened. So we're going to jump in now, but I wanted to give some background, set the stage to understand the context of where we're going and what's happening. And what we're going to see over the next four to five weeks is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's the Lord of salvation, and he always accomplishes his will. Now, we aren't going to go as in-depth as oftentimes we do. So this morning, we're going to ambitiously view all of chapter one. Um, it is a historical narrative of sorts, so it's, it's easier to move a little quicker. Um, so let's, let's put on our seatbelts and get going. Um, We'll read the text as we work through it. Our first point this morning that we're going to see in verses one through three is that God sends the prophet. God sends the prophet. Let's read them. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Yet Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, and paid its fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. Notice the first thing we see here in this book is that God speaks. God speaks. He tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And not only does God speak here, but he's speaking with urgency. There's a sense of immediacy. He's not telling him, hey, in a few months ago, no, now, here, get up, get going. It's a command that God is giving to Jonah, not a conversation. It's not something that's up for debate. It's short, direct, and to the point. As you read that, you should get the sense of, do not delay. And this phrase, arise. now the words of Yahweh came to Jonah. Again, this lets us know that this truly is a historical prophetic book, because that's the way Joel 1-1 starts. Micah 1-1, Zephaniah 1-1, Malachi 1-1, they all have that refrain. Now the word of Yahweh. That's an internal evidence to the historical veracity of this book. And so God speaks. He commands Jonah to get up and get going. And he says, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. That place of wickedness, that place of violence, that place of evil. I want you to go and you alone and go preach this message of judgment because of their sin. This is the only account we have of a prophet not speaking against a group of people, but actually going to the people and speaking against them. That's a hard charge, as we're going to see. But it's not up for debate what God commands his prophet must do. Now, I want us to see, though, the character of God in this, because as he says, for their evil has come up before me, that lets us know two very key things about who God is. First, that God is omniscient. You see, the Ninevites were not followers of Yahweh. The Ninevites have ignored God. They've paid him no mind. They could care less about him. And yet, God has not ignored them. God has his very eye on them. He sees how they're living. And he says, I see your wickedness because I am the all-seeing God. I am omniscient. I know all things. That's a sobering reminder for us that though we we may forget of God, we may ignore God. God has not forgotten us and God watches over us. And we see that God says that their evil has come up, which also lets us know here that God is holy. The reason God looks upon them and sees evil is because he is not. As Jonah preaches to them of their evil before the one true God, they are going to be made aware of their sin in the fact that this is an affront to Yahweh, the holy God. And what's extremely important to see here is that all faithful preaching, all faithful communicating of who God is and who man is must must share the reality of man's wickedness. Men and women must know that they're sinners. Recently, there was an article by the Gospel Coalition that was talking about in our moralistic or lack of moralistic age, people don't know, need to know they're sinners. They need to know how they're, they're worth. They need to know how worthy they are, how valuable they are. I don't know. Maybe they didn't read the book of Jonah. Men and women always need to be made aware of their sin because their problem is that they have sinned against the holy God. And so this is the message they are called to pro- that Jonah's called to proclaim. And that's important for us to realize that that's the hard part when we go to share the truth of God's word. We must communicate that God is holy and man is not. So he gives him his marching orders. And Jonah's a prophet. So you expect him to say, yes, sir, salute and get going. But he doesn't. We're told in verse three, yet Jonah arose to flee. It's really just an unexpected plot twist early on. Jonah, the one who's called to be the mouthpiece of God, Says I'm not doing it I'm not doing it I'm going to willfully Consciously Disobey God And by doing so He's basically saying I'm not going to be a prophet Even though I've been called to be a prophet And he goes to Tarshish Which is in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh About as far as you can go and he goes to Joppa, where he, that's where he gets to be able to board the ship. And what's really interesting about this church is that Joppa appears in the New Testament in a very important place. Remember, Jonah is called to go proclaim judgment to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert happens in Joppa. And in, in Peter's the one who communicates it. Peter was kind of hard-hearted to Gentiles, if you don't remember. Peter's kind of like, in some ways, a, a New Testament Jonah. So the place that Jonah goes to flee from proclaiming the truth of God to Gentiles is the place in the New Testament that the first Gentile convert comes. And what we're going to see as we continue to work through chapter one is this descent of Jonah. He just keeps taking a step lower and lower. God said, arise. Jonah goes down. He went down to Joppa. Now, I don't know how else to say this other than be frankly, but what we see in Jonah here is that sin makes you stupid. Jonah's a prophet. Jonah has great knowledge of who Yahweh is But he chooses sin And what happens is Sin will often take what you know to be true of God And hide it from you Jonah's trying to flee The omnipresent, omniscient God But Jonah has to know you can never outrun God You really think going to Joppa, taking a boat, and going to Tarshish is going to get you away from the Lord? No, you can run, but you can't hide. We're going to see later in verse 9 that Jonah knows this already. But it highlights his hard heart in just how unwilling Jonah is to take God's word to Nineveh. So we have to ask, why, Jonah? What is it about Nineveh that you are so hard-hearted and unwilling to honor the Lord? Well, there's a couple reasons. It could be fear of the Ninevites themselves. After all, the Ninevites are a violent, ruthless, wicked people. It's a military capital. So I'm just going to walk in there and preach to everybody you've sinned against the Holy God. There could be fear there. Maybe they'll kill him. Maybe they'll put him in bonds and in prison, and he'll never be free. Maybe he's fearful of the ridicule that'll come. Because if he's lucky, he'll walk the streets preaching this message and he'll be laughed at, mocked, ridiculed for his beliefs. So maybe it's, maybe it's that kind of fear. But again, that fear is never an excuse for faithlessness. And while those two points are true, there's an even more central reason for Jonah unwilling to go. And it's hate, hatred. Remember, we said the Ninevites were cruel. We said they were enemies of Israel. Not only that, the Ninevites were responsible for the destruction of the northern kingdom. If you were to turn into the book of Second Kings, chapter 17, you would see that whole narrative highlighted, verses 1 through 23. We see them destroying. So Jonah thinks on this. Jonah is aware of this. And Jonah wants Nineveh destroyed, not delivered. Because he knows that if he goes to preach judgment, it can result in repentance. And that's a risk Jonah doesn't want to take. No, I want you to destroy, not deliver them, Yahweh. So I will not do this thing. I'm not going to go preach good news, potential good news to my enemies. I'm not going to tell them that they're headed toward destruction and that they may turn. No, let them sit in their sin and rot. For all eternity in hell. That's why he doesn't want to go. I can't look my enemy in the face and say something to them that may result in me having to embrace them as a brother. I wonder, have you ever had so much hate in your heart that you choose to not share the message of God to somebody? Because what happens then if you have to embrace them as a brother or sister? That's where Jonah's at. God sends the prophet in verses one through three, but the prophet refuses to go. Jonah must not forgot that God has always had a plan for sinners across the globe to be reconciled to him by grace. This is the great promise he gave to Abraham that he would have a descendants as numerous as the stars from all around the world. Or listen to Psalm 67, verses one and two. Psalm 67, verses one and two read, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. That has always been the desire of God, but Jonah doesn't want a part of it. Thankfully, our salvation does not depend on Jonah. God sent his final and his greatest prophet in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also Made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Like Jonah, Christ was sent to a hostile people to proclaim a message of judgment, but he didn't run in fear. Instead, he marched forward in obedience to seek the salvation. Of the lost. And by faith in Christ, you and I are part of that mission now. You and I are sent to bring the news of his judgment and salvation to a hostile world. It's a difficult call, but it's a call that brings God great glory and brings about the greatest good. So you and I have to be prayerful. We have to be praying and we have to be willing to be used by God to proclaim his message of salvation through judgment and grace, even to those people we think are the most undeserving. We have to guard ourselves, we have to guard our hearts from becoming self-righteous and seeing ourselves as somehow more deserving than other people. Now, none of us would like to say that we are, but functionally, that's what we get if we don't keep our eyes on Christ and the cross. We begin to think we're not that bad. We're not like them, at least. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, we begin to diminish just how great a forgiveness we've received. And because we've diminished and seen so little of the forgiveness we've received, we end up having very little love for those who need that same forgiveness. So here's a really good test to know if you would have cut bait and run like Jonah did. I want you to think of the world we live in. I want you to look out into the culture. I want you to see all those people that are against the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, do you see them as threats to your way of life? Threats to your freedoms? Threats to your comforts? Or do you see them as men and women who desperately need saving from the wrath to come? Does your heart get hard or does your heart get soft When you see those outside of Christ. Or to put it a a different way, who are the Ninevites in your life that you're refusing to bring the good news to? That's our first point. God sends the prophet. second point is that God sends the storm. Verses four through 16, let's read. But Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship gave thought to breaking apart. Then the sailors became fearful, and every man cried to his God, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the innermost part of the vessel, lain down and fallen asleep in a deep sleep. So the captain came near to him and said, How is it that you're deeply sleeping? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Then each man said to the other, come, let us have the lots fall so we may know on whose account this calamitous evil has struck us. And so they had the lots fall and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamitous evil struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made this sea and dry land. Then the men became greatly fearful. And they said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become quiet for us? for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So he said to them, lift me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become quiet for you. For I know that an account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to dry land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy against them. Then they called on Yahweh and said, ah, O oh Yahweh, we earnestly pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Yahweh, as you have pleased, you have done. So they lifted up Jonah, hurled him to the sea, and the sea stood still from its raging. Then the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Our second point is God sends the storm. God sends a storm to stop Jonah dead in his tracks. He doesn't just send a storm, he hurls a great storm. That word hurls," it means to cast, to throw. We see that same word used in First Samuel chapter 18 verse 11. Then Saul. Hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. You see it in First Samuel 20, verse 33. Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. God has hurled this storm to pin Jonah right there in the sea. He's hurled, he's thrown this storm so that Jonah cannot flee any further. And in God doing this great thing, we see the awesome power of God. The omnipotent power of God, because only Yahweh would be able to do this thing. There is no other God, there is no other force in this world that could hurl a great storm down. Listen to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 28. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on many waters, they've seen the works of Yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep. He spoke and set up a stormy wind, which raised up the waves of the sea. They went up to the heavens. They went down to the depths their soul melted away in the calamity. They staggered and swayed like drunken men and their wisdom was swallowed up. Then they cried to Yahweh on their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. Or Psalm 135, verses six and seven. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. The one who causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This wasn't a coincidence. This was sovereignty. God has hurled a storm, pinning Jonah down. Now, what about these sailors? These sailors who are just they weren't asking for this. What's their response? After all, these are men of the sea. These are men who don't casually go on a fishing trip. They make their livelihood on these waters. They've seen their share of storms. And they recognize this one's different. This one is different. It's verse five. Then the sailors became fearful and every man cried to his God. Maybe it was because the storm just came quickly and out of nowhere. Maybe it's the power of the storm. Maybe it's both of those things. We don't know. But what we do know is that their bones begin to fill with fear. And they do what only, the only thing they can do. They cry out to their God. A reminder there are no atheists in foxholes. but they're crying out to their gods. They're not crying out to the one true God, which lets us know this is a religiously mixed ship. These aren't Jonah's people. These men most likely worshiped the false God of Baal Shaman. He was held in this area by the Phoenicians, which is most likely what these fishermen were, to be the God of the heavens. So this God should be able to control the storm. So they're crying out to him. But he can't help them. Why? Because he is no God. He's a figment of of men's imaginations. So they cry out, but that's not helping. What do we got to do next? Let's start throwing stuff off the ship. Let's lighten the ship because if the ship's lighter, we can control it better in the storm. But that doesn't help. Why? Because God has sovereignly pinned this ship down. And he is hurling wave after wave after wave. That it says in verse 5, interestingly, I mean, verse 4, that the ship gave thought to breaking apart. Do you see that personification? The ship is actually being spoken of as having thought processes of saying, if this doesn't stop, it's going to break apart here. Sailors are fearful. And yet where's Jonah? Jonah's taking a catnap. Again, we see the descent of Jonah, verse six, or then the verse five. but Jonah had gone down. There's this theme in, in this chapter of going down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. In the midst of this, this tempestuous storm, the prophet's sleeping. Which seems to be in, being used by God figuratively to show kind of his, the stupor, the spiritual stupor he's in. Captain goes down there, I can't believe this guy's sleeping, shakes him up. You got to get up, awake. And notice how the shit the captain talks. Arise. Call on your God. We saw in verse two, God told Jonah, Arise. The captain is calling on Jonah to pray to his God. And interestingly, there's no actual comments here that Jonah actually ever prayed. We never actually see Jonah cry out to God and pray as he was commanded here. Jonah boarded the ship to flee Yahweh, but now he's put in the position that this pagan sea captain is telling him to call out to Yahweh. At every corner, Jonah is confronted with the one true God and his rebellion against him. Why? Because you can never flee the Lord. He will chase you down. Can you imagine how Jonah is feeling right now? Not only that, he's put all these men at risk. The storm's not letting up. The sailors don't know what to do. Their false gods are no gods. So they say, you know what? We're going to cast lots. We're going to cast lots and figure out who's at fault for this. Casting lots was was a very common practice in the ancient Near East Uh, It involved taking usually colored stones and they would throw them in the the manner in which they landed. It would give them the answer to what was being seen. So for example, if you threw stones that were colored and, and both dark sides were up, that would maybe mean the answer is no, or the answer is yes. So maybe they're saying, well, let's see, is he responsible? No, no, no. They get to Jonah. Yes. Coincidence? No. Sovereignty. God sovereignly ca- has the, the 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 stones that are casted to fall on Jonah and no one else. Again, put yourself in Jonah's place. Storm. It's like no other storm. Ships almost breaking apart. False gods are helping that not at all. Cargoes being thrown off. Pagan captains are telling you to pray to God. Now they've cast lots. These pagans did just because that was their practice. And the stones themselves are testifying of your rebellion. God is sovereign and we will not be mocked. Jonah, you can run, but I even control the stones that are thrown. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs sixteen thirty three reads, the lot is cast into the lap, but every judgment is from Yahweh. Serve, that should remind us, it should serve as a reminder for you and me that we serve a God who governs all things. Our sinful stubbornness can never thwart his sovereignty. Jonah in this very no moment knows beyond a shadow of a doubt I have no chance of getting away from God. Then there's an the interrogation. The lots fall on Jonah. All the sailors are looking at him, and they pretty much put him on trial and start bombarding him with questions. Fearful sailors need some answers. Jonah can't hide anymore. Jonah can't stay silent, so he tells them, "Well,, I'm a Hebrew. It's interesting. He doesn't answer the questions in the order that they were asked. He starts first with his identity as a Hebrew. Common way of letting foreigners know he's an Israelite. Then he says something that's actually kind of funny. I fear Yahweh. Oh, Jonah, you fear God, do you? Some translations say worship. You didn't fear him enough to obey him the first time. This whole situation, this whole predicament that's happening is happening because you don't fear him. Had you feared Yahweh, you wouldn't be in the ship in the midst of this storm endangering these men. So your words ring hollow and insincere. And here's a word for all of us there are many today who are like Jonah in this very thing. They speak of fearing God with their lips, but they thumb their nose at him with their lives. They say, I fear God, and yet they hold hands with sin. We cannot say we fear God if we do not seek to obey him. When we say we fear God, but we willfully disobey him, we show ourselves to be liars. Actions do speak louder than words in many occasions. Fear of God is displayed By obedience to God. Then Jonah says, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. And that statement right there, he's pretty much shown the sailors. Yahweh is the one true God. He's not a local deity. He is the God of all things created on heaven and on earth. He is the great sovereign. Genesis chapter 24, verse 3. And I will make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth. The God they were crying out to could do nothing. Because it's Yahweh, not Baal. Or Baal, how we pronounce it? That's the God of the heavens. Listen to Psalm 95.5. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is, was he who made it. All of his hands formed the dry land. He is the God of the heavens. He is the God of the seas. He is the God of the waves. He is the one true God. And Jonah makes that clear to them. So the sailors now know all the information. All cards have been put on the table. There must have been something the way Jonah responded to them. Because now we see that the fear of the sailors has shifted from the storm to Yahweh. They realize that this storm is by divine, sovereign appointment. The seas, it says here, that the sea is becoming more violent. Jonah, what do we do? They look to the prophet for answers. They're not looking to their false God. They're looking to the prophet of Yahweh. What do we do? Interestingly, the prophet that didn't want to minister to pagans is now put in the position to minister to pagans. So Jonah admits his guilt. He takes ownership. He says, you know what? You have to toss me overboard. Toss me into this wicked storm. A sacrifice has to take place for the salvation of the sailors. And that seems really noble on Jonah's part. But we have to understand his character right now. Jonah rather die than go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't say, turn the ship around. Bring me back so I can go do what the Lord called me to do. We don't see any repentance here. Jonah crying out to God, God forgive me, and don't harm these men. He says, "Throw me overboard and let me die, and that'll be the end of the storm." And interestingly, the sta- the sailors here show themselves to have a better heart than God than, than, than Jonah toward God. Jonah, the one who should be displaying the care and the concern for people. is hard-hearted the sailors the pagan sailors show concern for jonah look what it says here verse 13 after hearing that jonah said Hur, hurl me into the sea however the men rowed desperately to return to dry land but they could not for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy against them they don't want to throw him overboard so they put all their muscle to work and they try let's get back to port But it doesn't work. Verse 14, they cry out to Yahweh on behalf of Jonah here. Oh, ah, oh Yahweh, we earnestly pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us for you, oh Yahweh, as you have pleased, you have done. They're grieved by the situation. They don't want to have to live knowing that they put Jonah to death. They show more fear of God than Jonah's displayed thus far. Because they ask, don't put his blood on us, please. We know who you are. What they do, they toss him over. They hurl him into the sea. And instantaneously, the storm stops. Could you imagine? You imagine a a storm that could break this vessel to pieces, and the minute Jonah hits the water, it's over? That's terrifying. Verse 16 says, then the men greatly feared Yahweh. Notice the change in the hearts of these sailors. In verse 10, then the men became greatly fearful. They were scared of the storm. No longer are they scared of storm, we're scared of Yahweh, who can silence a storm like that. And it says they offered sacrifices and they made vows to Yahweh. And we can't say definitively that they became believers. But verse 16 seems to indicate that because Yahweh is mentioned twice. There's an emphasis there. And the ancient commentary of the Old Testament that the Jews would use, called the Midrash, it records that this means that they gave up their idols and the worship of false God and came and worshiped Yahweh. So even in Jonah's disobedience, he's used by God to save Gentiles because God sends the prophet. God sends the storms. God is sovereign. Jonah's selfish sacrifice, throw me into the water that I'll die. Points and prefigures the unselfish sacrifice of Christ on behalf of Gentiles on the cross. Brothers and sisters, we cannot run and hide from God. God will find us and He will hurl storms into your life to pin you down to get you where He needs to get you. I highly suggest obedience because you cannot run from God and He will pin you down in in a stormy sea to teach you the lesson and sovereignly fulfill his will for your life. Briefly here, this last verse, God sends the prophet, God sends the storm, and now God sends the fish. Let me ask you this. Have you ever sinned against God? And as a result of sinning against God, you end up in a really bad situation? But then God graciously delivers you from that bad situation. You ever been in that place? You just make choices you shouldn't. The consequences are there. And yet God, instead of punishing you, saves you from it. That's what happens here. Jonah's done nothing to deserve saving. But we see here at the end of chapter one, one final sovereign, gracious act of God. Jonah is thrown to the sea, left to himself. He will drown, die, and rot at the bottom of the ocean. And yet God sovereignly sends a great fish who swallows him whole and keeps him there for three days and three nights. We're going to unpack more of that next week. But I want you to see that is not an act of judgment. That is an act of saving. Judgment would have been to let him die, to let him die in the sea. Saving is having the fish swallowed whole and preserving him. The great fish of salvation also prefigures Christ. God will sovereignly accomplish through Jonah what he has set out to do. Again, here he shows himself to be the one true God. These Phoenician men, one of the false gods they had was the God called Dagon. He was viewed as as the fish deity. And yet God here reigns over Dagon by showing, I command the fish of the sea. I am the sovereign God who saves. As you can imagine, Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the fish prefigures the three days and three nights that Jesus is in the tomb. the God who sent Jonah to Nineveh, the God who chased him down and stopped a storm, didn't do all that simply to let Jonah die at sea. So he saves him. And in the same way, God did not send his son to save you from your sins and the eternal death to come, simply to let you rot in your sin now. God will send storms and fish into your life to save you for his purposes. So what do we make of this entire account? First, God is absolutely sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. He's the one who sovereignly calls us into salvation and to his service. He's sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over all living things. And because he's absolutely sovereign, his will cannot be thwarted, but will be accomplished. Second, we see that he's the God of grace in the midst of all this. He graciously sent the storm to teach the sailors who he was and they worship him. He graciously sends the storm to stop Jonah from fleeing. Which again, you see that God in his grace will never let his children flee him. But he'll always bring storms into their life to course correct them. He sends... graciously the fish to save jonah therefore what's the response obedience we must obey the one true great sovereign god we must never let our hearts grow hard toward outsiders outsiders rather we need to go to them as god commands and preach christ crucified The only means for sinful man to have their sins forgiven and reconciled to holy God. You see, we easily can become Jonah when we take our eyes off the cross. None of us are deserving of the great salvation we have, not one. As we saw in the beginning, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Jonah lost sight of that. Jonah lost sight of how forgiving and how loving God was time and time and time again toward Israel. And that way, Jonah represents sinful Israel. And Jonah represents each one of us when our hearts grow hard to those outside of Christ. Because somehow we think we're deserving of Christ. God does not distinguish. He doesn't save based on some criteria. God is the great God of salvation for all. Jonah has to learn this the hard way. I pray that through Jonah's life, we can be spared such a storm. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the powerful and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty. We thank you for sovereignly saving us through faith in Christ. We thank you for sovereignly sanctifying us in this life by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you sovereignly use us in service to your kingdom purposes. We thank you, Lord, that when we begin to flee from you in our sin, we can't. And you will sovereignly send storms into our life to grab hold of us. And even in those storms, if we're hard-hearted as Jonah is, you will still sovereignly bring means of salvation to us because you will never lose one of your children. And we thank you that this is all possible because of what you did for us, Lord Jesus. You are the great prophet who came to bring the message of salvation by grace and judgment. You are the great one who sacrificed unselfishly for three days and three nights. You're the victorious one who rose from the dead and are reconciling Jew and Gentile to yourself. We Thank you for such grace and mercy displayed through your sovereignty. And we ask now that you would guard our hearts from becoming like Jonah. And if our hearts are hard now, through the preaching of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, you would shatter stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh.